over the last few weeks, I've seen this image going around online on social media. I've actually seen it a couple of times now. Um, if you can go ahead and go to the next slide, thanks so much. I know it's kind of hard to see here, but essentially they throw cannibalism in there as if those weren't bad enough. People of God, we need to get ready. And I've seen this going around more and more, and people are dead serious as they're sharing it. And um, it's not just bad theology, it's just bad math. I mean, can you imagine on your mortgage if you could cross out all the zeros? I would love that. My mortgage would be so much smaller if I could cross out all the zeros. Like, but people are sharing this, and people are scared. Like, I've seen people on my, my uh, Twitter feed and on Facebook, uh, Instagram. Like, they're scared. They're sharing this, and they're fearful. In American Christianity, we've been trained to see markers of doom and we've been so trained to see them, we see them everywhere, even when places they clearly aren't. Uh, Barna did a study at the end of 2022, and 65% of American Christians don't just think the end times are coming soon, they think they're actively in them right now. In my time in ministry, uh, there's no other subject that I've seen such confusion around as I have around what the Bible says about the end of all things about the end of the human story, about eschatology. Now, eschatology is just a fancy seminary word. It essentially means the theology of how things end. And in most cases, it's about how the world ends or how the human story ends. What passes for theology in a lot of churches, though, looks more like the fictional Left Behind books than it does the rich, historic, robust ideas of the biblical authors and the historic church. A lot of times when I'm talking to people and they start talking about the end times, I'm like, wait a minute, that's not from the Bible. That's from Tim LaHaye's book. Like, you're, you're, getting, you're, you're getting your books confused. We go by the Bible, not what the fictional Left Behind book says. And many people hold contradicting ideas together about end times theology because uh, their ideas about how the world end ha ends has been built piecemeal from a dozen different books and speakers all operating from differing frameworks. And so people have a bunch of patchwork ideas that come together. Um, but I will say this one thing. Go to any end times book or any end times conference or any end times sermon series, and there's one united feeling that you walk away with. A sense of dread and fear because the end is coming and it looks horrible. The only problem is that doesn't seem to be what the biblical authors wanted to convey when it came to the end of the world. Over and over again, the authors of the Bible encourage us to be obedient in the present because we can be hopeful about the future. You're going to get sick of me saying that because that's what I'm going to repeat over and over and over again throughout this whole series. We are to be obedient in the present because we can be hopeful about the future. That's why we have stuff about the end times in the Bible. Not so that we can have lots of conjecture, not so that we can have a sense of fear and dread, but so we can be obedient in the present and hopeful about the future. Hopeful about the future, though, isn't the emotion that most of us walk away from an end times conference or after reading a book. And sometimes the church has been downright manipulative with things about the end times, using our fears about the future in order to drive giving, to drive engagement, or coercing people into making statements of faith. Next week, I'm going to share a story about uh, where a guy preached a passage out of the book of Revelation when I was a kid, and just the, the way I felt manipulated by that whole story. When I taught a small group for young adults for six years, I taught a small group for college students 
and young adults. And I'd always ask every year when we started a new year, I'd say, hey, is there any topic that you're interested about, anything you have questions about, anything that we can cover? And everybody always wanted me to talk on the book of Revelation or themes of the end of humanity. I mean, people are drawn to mystery. We like mysterious things. Uh, we like the symbolism in Revelation and other passages because it's intriguing. Over the Christmas break, I watched the Netflix mystery, The Glass Onion. Anybody? Glass Onion? Oh, somebody else did. Nice. Um, I ended up watching it twice. The first time I watched it, I really couldn't enjoy it because the entire time I was trying to guess who the killer was. I was trying to predict all the twists. Like, I like mysteries. Yeah, no spoilers. I won't spoil anything today, I promise. But I was trying to guess everything, and so I actually couldn't enjoy the story. I actually missed some of the plot because I was running with my theories about what was going to happen. And while it's fun to guess, most of my guesses were dead wrong. And while it's fun to guess about some of the symbolism in some of these end times passages, um, most of our guesses are probably wrong. In some cases, some of my movie guesses distracted me from seeing the main plot. And I think sometimes some of our guesses about symbolism and some of these eschatology passages actually distract us from the main plot of scripture. Sherlock Holmes um, said, it is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. And I think a lot of people's theology is a bunch, especially around the end times, it's a bunch of theories, and then they begin to twist the facts of Scripture in order to fit their theories. There are times where we twist what we're reading in the Bible to fit some theory we have heard or some idea that we've had, and the text doesn't actually support it. Sometimes our theories about obscure passages distract us from the clear passages. It's always going to be easier um, to have conjecture about symbolic scriptural passages than it, will to be than it will be to obey simple scriptural passages. It's always easier to say, ooh, I wonder who the Antichrist is. I wonder if it's that guy. I wonder if it's that girl. I wonder if it's this or that. It's always easier to do that than it is to say, how can I love my neighbor today? Because that's going to be a lot more practical, hands-on. It's going to cost you something. It's a lot easier to say, man, I'm talking about biblical things. I'm having spiritual conversations. It's just about my ideas about who the Antichrist is. But Jesus told us to love our neighbor, not debate over who the Antichrist might be. Over the next few weeks, we're going to explore some eschatology passages from the Bible. And we're going to discuss historic church positions on the new beginnings for humanity. But just so you know, just so you're prepared about what to expect over the next few weeks, I am not going to predict what year the world's going to end. So if that's what you came for, I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to predict when Jesus will return. I won't be naming the Antichrist or giving you possibilities. I won't be giving you doomsday prepping tips either. So if you're like, man, I really came to find out like what I need to be stocking up on because if you add all those years together and drop out the zeros, you know, it's a year of preparation. I'm not going to give you doomsday prepping tips. They're on YouTube. Go look them up. Um, the eschatology of the Bible is not primarily about predicting the future. It's about, here's the line you're going to hear over and over again, obedience in the present because we have hope in the future. Okay, so all that out of the way, let's jump into our first passage that we're going to look at this morning. Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 15. This is an uh, eschatology passage. It's full of symbolism, so just stick with me, okay? In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. 
and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed, and he wrote down the substance of his dream. And Daniel said, this is him writing down what he dreamt, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. And four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, but it had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there was a second beast, which looked like a bear, but it was raised up on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, go up and eat your fill of flesh. And after that I looked, and there before me was another beast, and this one looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of, the, of a bird, and this beast had four heads. And it was given authority to roll. And after that, in my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and it devoured its victims. It trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different than all the other beasts, and it had ten horns. Now, while I was thinking about horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Anybody ever have a dream like this after you had late night pizza? Anything like that? Yeah. This is a crazy dream, right? As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, and coming out from before him, thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were opened, and I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its bodies destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. And then he has in parentheses a little side note. The other beasts were stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. He was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. When this comes up in your, like, you know, read through the Bible plan in a year, and you're like, what did I just read? Like, what is going on here? One important note, and this is essential, because so many pastors and speakers and TV personalities have built an entire ministry on eschatology. They often tell us to read our Bibles with the newspaper open, and I think that's a dangerous way to read your Bible. The books of the Bible we read were written to people long dead. They have application to us today because they are God-breathed, but Daniel did not write this to us. He couldn't even imagine us on a different continent than he even knew existed reading this uh, 2,500 years later. We're not the intended audience of this ancient Jewish writing or of the ancient Jewish prophets or even the Apostle Paul's letters to a Roman church in the first century. That doesn't mean there isn't stuff in there for us. We just have to remember that we weren't the original audience. Before we can make application to our time, we have to understand how the people it was originally written to understood it and what they took it to mean. It's extremely arrogant, and this is what I hear all the time when people come to an eschatology passage, and they say, you know what, all these things, for thousands of years people have been reading this, it had nothing to do with them. But today, it has to do with Russia and China, you know, like, it has to do with me today, right now. That's very arrogant to say that the people Daniel actually wrote to, it wasn't intended for them at all, it was intended only for us. I think it has stuff for us, 
but we have to remember that 2023 isn't the center point of human history. We like to think we're at the most important moment in human history because we're here and we're important, right? The story's about me, right? I just read Stephen King's book on how to become a better writer, and he says every human believes they're the, um, the hero in their own story. And he's like, when you write characters, make sure they think they're the hero in their own story, because every human does. Because we think we're heroes in our own story, we think that this is the most important time right now because I'm alive. Instead of reading our Bibles with the newspaper in one hand, we need to read our Bibles with church history in one hand, Because many of the things we mistake as future predictions have already come to pass. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Daniel was writing to Israelites. What was going on in Israel at this time? They were currently in Babylon. I think we have a map of the Babylonian Empire. It was huge. Probably the largest empire in the entire world that the world had ever seen at that point in history. After years of God supernaturally protecting Israel, defeating their enemies, they had been conquered and dispersed throughout the Babylonian Empire. Think about how you would feel if you're an Israelite. You've been told your whole life, you are the chosen people. You're going to be a platform for God's chosen person who's going to restore the relationship between God and man. And God's been supernaturally protecting your people. You grew up on the stories of his supernatural protection, escape from Egypt through the desert, conquering of all the nations who have come against you. And in your lifetime, you've been conquered and spread through a pagan evil empire. When those people read Daniel's vision, what would they realize? Babylon won't last forever. What happens to all the beasts? They die, are defeated, they're stripped of their power. Babylon's going to be defeated by other empires and ultimately by the eternal kingdom of the Son of Man. It felt overwhelming and impossible if you were in Babylon, conquered by this humongous, powerful, rich empire. It would seem impossible to imagine a future where Babylon wasn't the powerful, most powerful city, nation, empire in charge. But Daniel's vision gave them hope. As humans, we tend to be very short-sighted. I don't know about you, I'm very much this way. We cannot imagine anything changing. We think we are stuck where we are, but passages like this remind us that nothing lasts forever, nothing except God, his kingdom, and his love for us. Um, A few years ago, it came up in my memories, Darby and I were renting an apartment on the ground floor of a building. Above us were five Villanova uh, college sports team students um, who really... I mean, our front ports were often littered with their cases of vodka um, because they liked to party. And uh, I got so little sleep those two years we lived in that apartment. Like, I don't know how I'm still alive, honestly. You got even less sleep because I can sleep through most things. But sometimes you're just, your neighbors are so loud you can't sleep through it. And I remember one night laying awake in the middle of the night as I had yelled at them and called the police on them three or four times and they just kept partying loudly away in the middle of the night. And it was like 3 a.m., and it was like a Saturday before I had to preach on Sunday. And I remember thinking, this is purgatory. I will literally live here forever. This is never going to get better. This is never going to change. There's no future outside of this. I'm stuck in this moment forever. Um, and that's not the case. Now we've lived two years, over two years at our house, and we love it, and it's quiet and peaceful. And um, how quickly I forget You know, we forget. Nothing lasts forever. So if you're in a moment right now and you're like, this is lasting forever, it won't. The only thing that lasts forever is God's love. 
Most scholars think the four beasts represent four human empires. There's a lot of parallels between Daniel's vision and the visions that he interprets for uh, Nebuchadnezzar earlier in the book of Daniel. The four beasts seem to parallel the four types of metal in the statue of the vision that he interprets earlier in the book. The eagle represents probably, scholars think, Babylon. Uh, the the um, bear represents Persia, and the leopard, Greece, and the final beast, Rome. Um, here's an artist's representation of the beast. We don't know exactly what they look like, but from what Daniel tells us, they imagine this last beast as some kind of terrible dinosaur, like the next Jurassic Park monster or something. <coughs> and the others, um, he described as some version of lion and bear and leopard. Um, but the idea of beasts actually draws connection back to the Genesis story. Man was to roll over the beast, but a beast, a snake, actually tricked them and usurped authority from them. In his vision, Daniel is revealing that the world powers we see on display, who rule through violence and power and greed, are empowered by dark spiritual forces in the world. There are beasts behind the kingdoms of men. He sees them for what they really are, monsters. Monsters who eat each other and um, who eat other monsters until all monsters will be vanquished by the Son of Man. Now, set aside all the weirdness and all the symbolism, and Daniel's vision is about how every human dictator will die. Every evil human kingdom will fall. Only the kingdom of Jesus will last forever. So the next time you're watching the news and you feel that anxiety because Iran is doing something, or China is doing something, or Russia is doing something, or North Korea is doing something, and you feel that anxiety raise up, just remember every human kingdom falls, only the kingdom of Jesus lasts forever. In our lives, we will always have moment that moments that seem like they are going to consume us, but no season of suffering is eternal, no evil kingdom will last, only the kingdom of God lasts forever. And this passage is important for another reason, because Jesus loved to refer to himself as, anybody know what his most common reference to himself was? Son of man, that's right, 78 times in the Gospels, Jesus calls himself son of man. He's making a very clear reference to his first century audience who knew the Old Testament back to Daniel 7. He's claiming to be the long-awaited king at the end of Daniel chapter 7's vision right here. Jesus, every time he says son of man, he's saying, you know that man who's led into the presence of almighty God and becomes the eternal king? Uh, that's me. That's a pretty big claim. You can see why his enemies were so angry that he was using this claim all the time. He's saying Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, I'm bigger than all of them. In 1946, René Magritte uh, painted The Son of Man. Anybody familiar with this painting? I didn't know it was called Son of Man, but just as I was researching Son of Man, it came up, and so I started reading about him. Uh, people were confused about the symbolism in his painting. The character's face is obscured by an apple. His left arm appears to bend backwards, and Magritte said of his painting, I thought this was such an interesting quote, everything we see hides another thing. We always want to see what is hidden by what we see. There is an interest in that which is hidden and which the visible does not show us. This interest can take the form of a quite intense feeling, a sort of conflict between the visible that is hidden and the visible that is present. 
I was like, oh, what a perfect quote to go along with a uh, series on eschatology. There are so many things that are visible and yet hidden, and so many things that are hidden, and yet we just see glimpses of them. One of those is the kingdom of God is here, but not yet. It is coming, but it's not yet fully visible. We always want to see what is hidden by what we can see. This is what drives people's curiosity about the end times. And this is why people were frustrated by Jesus. Uh, Not because he made the claim to be the son of God, but because he didn't fulfill that claim like they expected. What he did obscured what they expected to see. They couldn't envision his arrival in two parts, once as a suffering savior and once as our long-awaited king. One of the most dangerous mistakes that first century Israel made was to confuse what Jesus would do in his second coming with what he did in his first coming. But we as modern readers often confuse what Jesus did in his first coming with what he's still yet to do in his second coming. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in this series. Sometimes we get confused about what's coming next and what's already happened. Uh, Many times because we just don't have a good sense of church history. Many times, people explaining the symbolism of the Bible often ignore the obvious ways the prophecies have already been fulfilled in history in order to predict something still to come in our present future. Throughout Daniel chapter 7 through 12, he has a series of dreams and visions. We're not going to cover all of them. And many of them have more to do with human history and how it affected Israel leading up to Jesus than it does with modern world news and how it affects us. Always be cautious when somebody sits down with you and they're like, man, all those symbolic passages in the Bible, I got them all figured out. Let me tell you exactly what they all mean. Um, You might just want to be like, I'm going to take this with a grain of salt because they probably don't have it all figured out. Consider what Daniel said in Daniel 8.27. I, Daniel, after seeing these visions, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond all understanding. So if Daniel, who had the vision, couldn't fully understand it, it's a little presumptuous for us to read it and say, you couldn't understand it, but I can. Because I'm reading it with the newspaper in my hand, right? He couldn't make sense of his own visions, so be careful thinking that you're smarter than Daniel was. If these visions are symbolic and beyond figuring out, you might be like, why did God even give them to him? Like, what's even the point? These visions and dreams and prophecies remind us that good overcomes evil. It reminds us and Daniel that King Jesus reigns forever. It reminds us that every dark night has a dawn. Now, that's not really what most people want when they want to study end-time prophecies or they buy a book on the end times or they go to some conference or watch some YouTube video. We want a horoscope about the future. We don't want just hope that we can trust in God's character and nature. Our comfort is not that we know what will happen the bible doesn't give us play by play what's going to happen in the future but it does tell us who wins the game we want to know the future but instead he compels us to be obedient in the present because we can be hopeful about the future many times when i what i really want to know is i don't want to be surprised by something like if i if i know it's coming i can prepare for it but jesus asks us to live by faith And that means there will be things in your personal life that surprise you. There will be things in the life of your country and of your church and of our world that surprise us. We can't predict what 2023 will hold. I can't promise you that it won't have famine and pestilence and, God forbid, cannibalism like that social media post says. But I can tell you this. 
Jesus holds us, and he will never let us go. I don't know everything that the next year holds for us, but I know that Jesus holds us. No matter what comes, his love is eternal. So as we end today, I just want to read this paraphrase of Daniel 7:14 together. The rule of King Jesus is an everlasting kingdom that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can take confidence in the future because of your character and because of your nature. God, forgive us for so desiring, wanting to know how it's all going to work out so that we don't really have to use so much faith. Forgive us for so often wanting to control things instead of trusting you. Forgive me, God, for wanting everything in my life to go a certain way and being terrified when I don't have the control to make everything work out like I hoped. God, I know that despite what comes into our story, you're in control. So God, I ask that we will trust you. And if there are people who are fearful and afraid about what comes next, that you will remind them that you are with them and that you are for them, that you're not going to tell them the end of the story, but you're not going to make them face that end without you. I pray, God, that you will make us a people filled with hope so that we can live obedient lives in the present.